Today is Wednesday, November 4th. The title for our devotional is You Are Light. The last couple of days we've been exploring the salt metaphor Jesus uses for his disciples. Today we'll look at what it means to be the light. Matthew 5, 14-16 says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Light, when used metaphorically, can carry a few different meanings. It typically has a holiness meaning attached to it. Israel's role in the world was to be a light to the Gentiles, that is, a community that represented and reflected God's holiness. Paul says that God himself, quote, dwells in unapproachable light, 1 Timothy 6.16, a reference to his holiness. John particularly often uses light to convey revelation as well. Light always dispels darkness and reveals that which once was in the dark. Light, therefore, reveals what is true. Biblical authors often use light and darkness in contrast to demonstrate the difference between good and evil. With the reference to a city on a hill here, Jesus could have in mind the Festival of Lights, also known as the Festival of Dedication or Hanukkah. This festival commemorated the reconsecration of the temple in 164 BC after it had been defiled. Jerusalem would be lit up with lanterns and visible for miles around. This was a festival instituted by the Maccabees in the intertestamental period of Israel's history. Similar to the negative angle of salt losing its taste and being thrown out, Jesus emphasizes how silly it would be to attempt to hide a city on a hill or to light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, light is meant to illuminate and provide light for those around to see. So, by telling his followers that they are to be light, Jesus is telling them that they must be holy, set apart, different from the culture around them. In doing this, they must illuminate truth. They cannot fully assimilate to the culture. They must be distinct from it. Yesterday we talked about the four different postures that Christians can take in relation to the culture. One is purity from, isolating and moving away from it. Two is defensive against, always waging war with it. Three is relevant to, that is assimilating completely into it. And four is faithful presence within. Jesus' call for his followers to be light in the world eliminates the quote relevant to approach which usually results in a loss of distinction between Christians and the culture. For additional content today, I've included episode one in the first season of a podcast called This Cultural Moment. This week, we're exploring what it looks like for Christians to engage faithfully with culture. This podcast is maybe the best I've ever heard at assessing the current cultural landscape and discussing how Christians can live faithfully in it. I'd strongly encourage you to check out the whole season. I've linked you to it in the devotional page. This is a lot longer than the usual devotional, but I promise it's absolutely worth it. Enjoy.
Hey everybody, welcome to This Cultural Moment, a podcast where we talk about following Jesus in the secular, progressive, post-Christian world. I'm John Mark Comer. I live in Portland, Oregon, where I teach the way of Jesus at Bridgetown Church, and I am here with the legendary Mark Sayers, who is also a pastor and teacher at Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. But what Mark is really known for is cultural commentary. So the end goal of this podcast is for myself to sit here and channel the muse that is all things Mark Sayers as we talk about how do we follow Jesus in this kind of a cultural moment. In this, our first podcast, we ask the question, what is post-Christian culture? Post-Christianity is the Christian project attempted to be continued, you know, forgetting its sources that it comes from. So in a sense, it's the kingdom without the king. Mark, good morning. You're here. You just got into Portland from Melbourne along with your team. So we're sitting here in this dingy basement of an old church that we run out on Sunday nights, and uh, you're getting over jet lag. Hope you, we have our heart coffee here to keep yes, you awake, yes. me awake. I think you've had three cups I've had already. Three. I'm, I'm good. It's great to have you here. So good to be with you. Hey, um, I live in Portland, as you know. You live in Melbourne. I was just in your city. Now you're in mine, and they're very similar. You sound a lot cooler, but <laughs> we pronounce English better. Yes, so, yes. you know, pros and cons. And I hear this catchphrase a lot about post-Christian culture, and you hear it used in relation to a city like a Portland or a Melbourne or a San Francisco or L.A. or New York or Austin or London, and more and more of the Western world as a whole. As the world is getting larger, it's also getting smaller through the rise of the Internet and the digital age and globalism. And so more and more, we're all breathing the air of this kind of Western, secular, post-Christian cultural moment, whether you live in the urban core of a Portland or a Melbourne like you and I, or in suburban Atlanta, more and more, we're all breathing this kind of an air. So what exactly do we mean by post-Christian culture? And if there's a post-Christian culture, does that mean there's such a thing as Christian culture or pre-Christian culture? What is the paradigm that you're working out of? I mean, the term post-Christian has been around for some time. So even Australia in the 18th century was described as a post-Christian culture. So there's that sense that if you look at Western history and the trajectory of so much Western thought um, and things like the Enlightenment and so on, uh, people have been using the term for a little while. I think probably in the last sort of 20 years in Christian circles, there was a realization that we'd moved beyond, you know, I guess the era of Christendom and, and yeah. we're dealing with a new context. And that happens sooner in Australia than in America. Yes. I mean, you're saying 18th century. That's a very yes. long time ago. People were talking about post-Christian culture. Yes. Yeah. I mean, Australia was begun, you know, America was begun as a utopia. Australia begins as a dystopia. Right. Um, you know, you begin with religious sort of uh, refugees from Europe. We begin with convicts. Yeah. We get, off, we get off the boat and have a prayer meeting. Yes. And yeah. you get off the boat and have an orgy, right? Yes. That's how the story <laughs> yes, goes. Yes, pretty much. Um, yeah. So my, like, my, you know, great, 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 great grandmother or whatever, you know, comes off and was put into this particular kind of prison in a place called uh, Port Arthur in Tasmania. And and that prison was, you know, designed um, uh, with the thought of a, an English philosopher, Jeremy Bentham, who was trying to create this sort of modernist uh, prison, which everyone would be, uh, you know, sort of, uh, I guess, reformed, you know, through the mains of the Enlightenment into this new kind of human, which didn't work that well. It was actually pretty <laughs> horrible. Um, so, yeah, so the term's been around for some time, but I think, yeah, in Christian circles, it's increasingly used in cities like yours and mine. It's increasingly used to describe the context of the West. And I think there's some confusion around how we use it. So there's almost a sense that it's been used and understood as a culture that's 
again, in a sense, rejected Christianity that's like moved beyond it and has no vestiges left of Christianity today. Uh, similar with Christendom, people talk about, you know, post-Christendom culture. But I think what people miss is that I think it's still there. You know, I often say it's like Hamlet's ghost. He's, he's dead, but he's still influencing the plot of the play. Yeah, it's the Julian Barnes line, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Yes. That sense of how the West is haunted by its Christian past. Mm, yes, absolutely. So is there a paradigm for Christian culture or pre-Christian culture? Yeah, I mean, like a sort of simple paradigm that, that I've used, which sort of is borrowing a concept from the sociologist Philip Reef, is this idea of, you know, first, second, and third culture. So there's the sense that you have that pre-Christian culture where the world is is deeply shaped by spiritual forces. The average person feels themselves in a, in a world besieged. This is where, you know, a world of taboos, a world of multiple gods, a world yeah. of superstition where, you know, everything has, you know, a, a sense of foreboding behind it. So it's the Roman Empire before the gospel of Jesus and yes. what was called paganism. It's the barbarians yes. up in the north, ancient European, neo-pagan, Wiccan yes. kind of, that's a pre-Christian culture, yeah. highly spiritual, but no knowledge of Christ. Yes, and yeah, and you see that sort of across the world um, before Christianity comes, and then you have what Reef would call a second culture, which is you know a creedal culture. It's a culture you know you'd, we classically look at something like you know Judaism, Christianity, Islam. It's a culture which has a monotheistic view of God. It's rejected the ancient um, sort of paganism. It's it's moved into this more monotheistic, more you know uh, justice-based sense of 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 faith, and and often has you know sacred book that it works out of. Right. So does Reef's philosophy of first culture, second culture, third culture only apply to Christianity or to religion, or does it apply? Is there a pre-democratic culture, democratic culture, post-democratic culture? Is there a pre-secular, secular, post-secular cultural moment, or is it just applied to Christ? Well, he, he, he was, yeah, he, he was, uh, yeah, a sort of uh, well-known sociologist who then, you know, wrote a lot about the history of psychology and, you know, really was, I guess, had this project, his background was Jewish and he became more overtly Jewish as he got older. And so he was trying to display to people the religious sort of underpinnings of so much of our sort of progression, progression uh, philosophically, that people thought that they'd got ridden of uh, religion, but it was still operating. And, and he talked about how uh, therapy was, you know, still religious in that sense. So he talks about then after comes a third culture and a third culture defines itself against um, the second culture. So he very much saw that there was this rebellion against creedal culture and he was trying to advocate for elements of you know, Judaism and he had an appreciation for Christianity as well, despite being uh, a Jewish. And he then talked about that third culture is defining itself against second culture. And I think that's the part that so many people have missed about understanding post-Christian culture. Often, it doesn't, so it doesn't just mean that, hey, we've moved on. You know, yes. the West used to have a Christian or a Christianized, it was never Christian, but a Christianized yes. culture. Christian technically is not an adjective, it's a noun, yes. but we use it often as an adjective. But post-Christian culture doesn't just mean we've moved on. It's no. a reaction against. Yes, and, and it's almost an anti or anti, as you would say, um, culture. So it's defining itself against and it's actually deconstructing. So, so much of the sort of post-enlightenment, um, you know, some people would use the term postmodern, um, is that sense of deconstructing what has come before. So it's deconstructing and wanting to run on with the project of Christianity, 
but without Christ. Okay, so talk to us about that, because I feel like we're living in this cultural moment of deconstruction. You see it in the church, in particular with my generation. I'm born in the 80s. I'm the first year for the millennial thing. And there's just, and your generation is too. I mean, you're Gen X. You're a few years older than me, but so much deconstruction at not only a theological level, now we see it at a political level, at a mm. socioeconomic level, at a racial level. There's just deconstruction, and some of it, I think, is actually really healthy, mm. but it just feels like we're tearing the world down one brick at a time. Well, Leslie Newbegin, who's a you know, missiologist, he talked about the fact that, in a sense, you know, if you look at, say, Galatians, it talks about, you know, moving beyond the elementary principles in the world, that, that with Christ's coming that this desacralizing of the world had occurred. So no one could go back to paganism as it was understood before. And so there's this real religious change that happens after Christ. And so in a sense, the whole world could be described as post-Christian. Islam is something which defines itself against Christianity. Uh, even you know, contemporary Buddhism, as we understand it, was, you know, in a sense, goes through this this process of defining itself against Christianity as well. You know, you have a Buddhist flag it's created. Uh, there was a guy, I think his name was uh, Olcott, who was a Presbyterian, sort of liberal Presbyterian, who then sort of becomes a Buddhist and shapes a lot of understanding about how Buddhism exists. So, so many sort of world religions then redefine themselves in, in uh, dialogue with sort of the Christian mission movement. Because it's spread all over the world. Exactly. It has a global historic influence. Yes. And alongside modernity, which also spreads around the world and economic, you know, development and in the industrialization of the world. So there's this sense then that Christianity is something which Newbegin says almost you know, partners a little bit with secularization in the sense that, you know, after Christianity is, is even taken to a place like India, which is where he was a missionary in India, it then sort of says to men, uh, you know, here's Christianity, but then here's, you know, economics alongside it, industrialization and so on. You can't then go back to this pagan understanding of the world where you're in fear of gods. So it creates this sort of secularism, which in a sense, Christianity can hold together at, at some point. But then as we begin to move beyond Christianity, you then have this Christian tone or Christian temper to, to, you right. know, to global culture, but it doesn't have the sort of bulwarks holding back the, the human sort of uh, Promethean spirit. So in your book, Disappearing Church, which of all of your books is by far my favorite, you have this little line, how we want the kingdom without the king. And that's yes. kind of your one-line summary of post-Christian culture, how we want so many of the aspects of what Jesus called the kingdom of God, which was a social vision. And we often, it was a socio-political vision even. And we hear political and think democratic or Republican or, you know, Demo but that's not what he's getting at. But it was a socio-political vision. It had to do with the polis, with society, with how we organize as human beings. And so many of the values of the kingdom of God, justice and peace and equality, are really the core of so much of post-Christian culture on the left and on the right all over the Western world. But yet there's this reaction now to the idea of Christ as Christ, as king. Yes. So, I mean, and, and I think some of us in the West don't realize how cultural that is. So even equality. So, for example, you know, a place like India where you've had a karmic view of the world, uh, you know, where we would look at someone who's, say, homeless and we, you know, feel the outrage around that and so on. If you believe in a karmic world of multiple lives and someone is homeless, they're incurring 
the, in a sense, the punishment for want of a better term of something that happened in previous life. So in that view of the world, in Eastern views of the world, which is very cyclical, mm-hmm. you don't have this idea that we're going to progress to this utopian future. You don't have this idea that social everyone should, justice, social justice, there's exactly. no moral imperative for social justice. Exactly. So, you know, whilst you have those things in, in places like India now, we don't realize how much that has grown out of the Christian vision. Post-Christianity is the Christian project attempted to be continued, even forgotten, you know, forgetting its sources that it comes from. So in a sense, it's the kingdom without the king. It's that project of secularization, which, you know, in a sense accompanied where people were freed from, you know, the pagan powers controlling everything from that fear of the universe. Um, but then you have some of these sort of restraints disappearing. So, so one example would be around how much the West has fallen into a form of self-hatred. Now, there's an element of that which uh, is actually from the Christian vision. The interesting thing is that the church... Like the, is that like the prophetic instinct that the church yes. has to criticize itself yes. that goes all the way back to the Hebrew prophets to like totally. celebrate who we are but yet critique yes. who we aren't? I mean, you just think of the book of Ezekiel. There's this incredible passage, I think it's Ezekiel 8, where you know Ezekiel is shown the temple priesthood secretly in this back room worshiping idols and you know it's almost like a david lynch movie there's these insects yeah. crawling around and then the and then the shekinah glory actually leaves the temple um and at the beginning of ezekiel it's actually found in babylon so there's this self and this is insider critique so this totally. isn't some angry post-christian blogger this is a prophet a hebrew prophet totally. who is like critiquing the temple the epicenter of his nation and his yes. faith and, 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 and you see, you know, all the stuff in yeah, the Old Testament prophetic tradition in the church. I mean, the book of Acts doesn't give us this squeaky clean version of the church. You know, Anais and Sapphira stealing money, anti, you know, yeah. calling the... the New the, Testament letters, Paul to the exactly. Corinthians. Yeah. You know, wolves coming amongst you and so on. So that then continues in the Western tradition um, that inside a critique where there's an element, we'll critique ourselves harder than we'll critique other people. So like Donald Trump will tweet you know, something angry at, um, you know, the North Korean regime who are horrible, you know, who have gulags so big, you can see them from space, you know, who have, I think it's abducted 160,000 people from other nations. Um, You know, like this is Nazi Germany bad, but we'll critique the president of the United States for a bad tweet more than we'll name the incredible injustice, racism, uh, violence of the North Korean regime. So there's this sense where we always point at ourselves. So there's an element of the progressive vision which wants to critique the West. Um, and so there's an element of that which is prophetic, wow. but without Christ, it becomes self-hating. Yes, um, because instead of under his authority, it's a rebellion against his authority. I mean, one of the questions I have, the, the Western democratic vision, I've been reading some of the Founding Fathers recently, was based on a Judeo-Christian moral ethic. John Adams, who wasn't a follower of Jesus, he was a Unitarian, just read his biography, was emphatic that this system only works with a unified moral ethic that was essentially the Judeo-Christian, not theology, but moral ethic. And so one of the things I think that's so interesting is now the West has this moral and sociopolitical vision for society that is a hangover from the teachings of Jesus and what he called the kingdom of God, but we no longer have an authority. We no longer have Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the writings of the New Testament, as our authority. So now we argue for justice and equality and freedom, which of course would be redefined, but without the same sense of authority. And I feel like we're floundering more and ever, more than ever, as our moral visions for America, for the West, diverge. Yes. And and then what happens in that place is that 
there's almost a hint here, I think, of Genesis and the fall in the sense that Adam and Eve are presented with the, the serpent's question that if they you know, eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they can become like gods. So in a sense, that's a divine project to become like gods, but they want to do it with their own authority intact. They want it, yeah. So let's, let's end this episode with this. Before we came here, we were at Heart Coffee down the street. We're in the west end of downtown Portland. We're having, you know, batch brew coffee, as you would call it, in Australia that cost $4 or something like that. We're in beautiful architecture, Scandinavian-style design. You had breakfast across the street this morning. There's a $4 brioche donut if you want it for a snack. And we're in utopia. We're living in the progressive vision in what you call the beautiful world. And I love how you chat about, um, you know, 20 years ago, we have, so Blade Runner is coming out soon, one of the movies a lot of us are really excited about this fall, the kind of follow-up with Ryan Gosling and Harrison Ford still in it, to the original, which was what, 80? What year was the original? 82, I think. 82, so I was a baby at the time. And you make the point, that was kind of how people thought the future would turn out Mm. um, a few decades ago, was this kind of dystopian... LA and the mm-hmm. rain and global warming, so everything's a disaster. And instead, we're sitting here with $4 coffee and we're wearing nice clothes and we had a good breakfast and we cycle everywhere and there's parks and architecture. So is post-Christian culture delivering on its promise? It, I think it was Douglas Copeland said a number of years ago, the future is going to be this German city of Bonn. You know, which is like this very pleasant, quiet, you know, modern city. And in a sense, that's what's arrived. But there's an element in that where that's that vision which post-Christianity promises, there's still an injustice at the heart of it. There's still gentrification. There is still a Portland is able to be a Portland because, you know, there's a border around yeah. the country. Because um, there's a Vietnam to make our shoes. Exactly. Because there's a middle of America to drive our trucks and, you know. Exactly. And, and yeah, so there's this, there's the element where the secularization project still requires this space of protection for the individual then to pursue their free will. So everything around us is a form of theology in the post-Christian society. All the stuff you mentioned before is a form of, of forming and, and, and a theology um, but also what I think it's not delivering is it's not because you said that central sort of defining vision of the West, that foundation isn't there is it's defined. It's giving us nice coffee, but it's not giving us a sense of meaning. Right. So you have two problems. One is this beautiful world that you and I live in is a tiny little percentage of the world that yes. enjoy $4 coffee and live in this beautiful city and don't fear crime or mm. violence where it's Elysium, you know, mm. if you saw that movie or know the Greek myth. And the cracks are starting to show that the world that we enjoy is basically the byproduct of human trafficking, massive socioeconomic mm. injustice, globalism, so on and so forth. But then at the same side, even in the beautiful world, the people there sitting on their $2,000 MacBook, drinking mm. their $4 coffee, wearing their raw denim um, as they work for whatever cool ad agency in town, are racked by anxiety. Yes. The family is basically a disaster across our nation. In the church I lead, you know, 64% of us come from a broken home. You have mental illness that is just skyrocketing mm. all across America. You have relational breakdown. You have now the socio-political breakdown, our nation's hostility, outrage, mm. anger. We no longer have a way to turn out character. We no longer have a vision for character mm. or any kind of formation machine in secular culture to make men and women of character. You have racial injustice that's now come to the surface mm. and is tearing the fabric of our society apart. So post-Christian culture, it has good coffee 
and great design, but we're missing a few things. Absolutely. Great stuff. So much more to talk about, and we hope you tune in again. We are a brand new podcast, so if you want to help us out, spread the word, uh, share a link with your family or friends to this online, or if you could do us a huge favor, just go to iTunes really fast and write a review. Hopefully a good one, but that's up to you. Write a quick one, two-sentence review, spread the word, and we'll be back soon with episode two. Thank you.